Hi there and welcome to Florida's fourth estate where we delve into the issues involving Florida and things that take off from Florida. <laughs> uh, and we have, uh, you're not even going to believe what we're talking about today. It's crazy. Uh, I'm Matt Austin, by the way. Yeah, I'm Ginger Gadsden. We are super excited because we love space talk here because yeah. we live on the Space Coast, basically, mm -hmm. and things like to take off from Florida. Well, they don't like to, they just do. <laughs> we just shoot them up there. Yeah, exactly. So today is really super special. Normally we talk about topical things like stories in the news, but because our guest is so special and we have something that we can't even we can't even broadcast this until a certain date so we yeah. don't want to talk about the stories that are happening now because they'll be dated by the time we air it. exactly we're shooting this five days before this big paper is released and we don't want to give away any of the secrets we're not allowed so no. we're embargoed but we have a cool guest that's for sure yes so you're umberto campins correct from the university of central florida you are a you teach uh you're not a astronomy, are you astronomy I'm, and I'm a professor of physics and astronomy okay and I yes. teach astronomy let's just let him say what he does yes because <laughs> I would never be in your classroom um, <laughs> why not I mean I, I get freshmen from communications from uh, nursing from business from yeah who want to take astronomy as one of their electives or as one of their do you ever get news science. anchors because I would love to take one of your classes it'd be fascinating you're welcome to even audit it if yeah you I was like. gonna say I don't want to take it I just want to audit oh, yeah, it yeah I don't want to be graded no I just want to listen sliding scale for sure. So you're here to talk about something that we've been talking about in the news and it started back in 2016 and we want to show a little video of what happened. This is September 8th, 2016 and this happened. And liftoff of Osiris-Rex, its seven-year mission to boldly go it is a bold mission, too. It really is. You were talking to us before we actually started about what that September day was like. Can you go into detail about what, for you, being there and seeing that? It was, it was a, a wonderful feeling. We lucked out because the typical weather, as you both know, uh, in September here in Florida would be a thunderstorm or a tropical storm or a hurricane. And instead, we had a perfect day. It was beautifully clear. There was a breeze off the ocean. We were sitting on these bleachers. The sun was setting behind <laughs> us. And the spacecraft and the, uh, the rocket went up with the spacecraft right on time. And right afterwards, one of my Japanese colleagues who was here for the launch said, Umberto, you live in a place with perfect weather. <laughs> and I said, not always. But and that was the launch. It was not the start. For me, it started in January of 2010 when I was invited by the team to help them write this proposal to, to compete with other proposals for NASA to fund us. And then uh, I, I, I joined at the time and we submitted the proposal in 2010. In 2011, they selected us as the mission that was going to be fully funded to uh, develop the spacecraft, build it, launch it, go to this asteroid, map it for a year and a half, which is what we started doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then in mid-2020, we're going to go down to the surface of the asteroid, pick up a sample, and bring it back to Earth for analysis. Yeah, and I think what we didn't, I, I think we probably skipped over this in the in the intro, is that this spacecraft is rendezvousing right now, right now. with an asteroid. That happened on Monday when it got in range. Right. We've been approaching it, and we've been taking images as we approach it, but now we're going into an orbit around it. Uh, the orbit has several reasons, and one of them is to map exactly the distribution of mass in this asteroid. So as we approach it, 
this object, which is not perfectly spherical, will have different gravity in different spots. So we need to maneuver and, and uh, bring the spacecraft down to the surface in mid-2020, understanding all the variations in the gravitation as we come close to it. And, uh, and we're also mapping the surface with our cameras. I'm on the imaging team, so I'm part of the team that will be uh, obtaining, processing, and analyzing these images to select a sample on the surface, a, a spot on the surface where we're going to be doing the sampling in mid-2020. And so, for example, we don't want a spot with too many large rocks that could impact the, the spacecraft as we come down to the surface. We don't want a spot that uh, does not have enough loose material that our sampling mechanism can pick up. It's like an we, arm, right? It, it's it going to grab arm. it. So the spacecraft is going to fly real close to the surface, be in complete basically uh, be rotating at the same speed as the asteroid rotates so it's sta stationary with respect to the surface then it will deploy this uh, uh, about 12 foot long uh, arm and that arm is going to be touching the surface for five seconds firing these nitrogen uh, gas that it will fluidize the pebbles and the dust on the surface go into the sampling canister and that canister gets put into the capsule against gets brought back to earth and you're this, messing with me right now there's no way that this can happen and by the way uh, not only will will this happen but when we're really close to the surface we don't want to be firing our thrusters because we don't want to kick up enough dust that could blind our cameras ah, so we yeah. don't want to be in a dust cloud uh -huh. so we come down to the surface gently this pogo stick will go <laughs> and will touch the surface and it has a spring that pushes the spacecraft back so that we can move away from the asteroid without firing our thrusters. When we're far enough away, we will fire our thrusters, move away, take that canister, put it into the capsule and head back to Earth. We come back in 2023. Okay, so can we back up just a couple of seconds because you've said several things that have blown us both away. Yeah. When you talk about this uh, spacecraft, OSIRIS-REx, rendezvousing with the asteroid at the same speed. What kind of is the rotation? What kind of speed are we talking about? The, the asteroid rotates about every 4.3 hours. So every 4.3 hours, it goes into the night side, comes back around, and gets to the okay. moon. And we're going to select a, a spot on the surface. We don't know which one mm -hmm. yet. But when we do that, we need to be matching the asteroid's orbit around the sun and rotation perfectly so that the spacecraft is stationary with respect to the surface. So once we get there, we will deploy this mechanical arm and touch it. That is the safest approach to doing this. We want to preserve the safety of the of the mothership, and we want to select the sample with the minimum risk. And this asteroid you're talking about, it's Bennu. Bennu. How large or how not large is it? How big is it's this thing? Five, it's five blocks across, 500 meters across. Okay. So it's, uh, it, it's about the height of the Empire State Building, um, and so it sounds like a small rock. Right, uh, but, but when you're talking about rendezvousing with something in space, that's like finding a speck. Yes, it is, <laughs> and that's that's a very good point. Traveling and at how many thousand miles an hour? It's, tra it's traveling around the sun at about the same speed as Earth. Uh, so, but uh, the we you know we have different orbits, and we m wanted to match orbits with it. And as we did that, which happened a couple of weeks ago. We went from navigating with respect to the stars. And once our cameras acquired the asteroid, we started navigating with respect to the asteroid because that will minimize the uncertainties. And then when we are approaching it, we know exactly how far away we are. 
And then when we get close enough, we're going to use a Canadian instrument that got contributed to the mission by the Canadian Space Agency, which is a LIDAR. It will bounce lasers off of the surface and tell us exactly how far we are. Not only will it tell us the distance from the spacecraft to the surface very precisely, but we'll also map the surface with the radar, and we will be matching the 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 maps from the ra- from the from the lidar with the the images that we're taking, and make sure we're using them to calibrate and correct each other. We have to do this very precisely because we want to go to the a part of the surface that has loose enough uh, material for us to collect, yet not have any rocks or uh, areas that could endanger the spacecraft or if it's like in a crevasse Mm -hmm. it could be too hot for the spacecraft to operate there are all these factors that we need to take into account between now and mid 2020 so we can select that sample and go to the safest possible place on the surface now i know there are going to be skeptics out there saying we are spending lots of money I can't believe we're, you know, they're out there listening to this podcast. Why are we spending all this money to study an asteroid? The voice of all skeptics, by the way. That's every time there's a skeptic on our show. That's how he talks. (laughs) But this could have very huge impacts for our future for a couple of ways. If an asteroid were headed toward Earth, which we've seen in movies, uh, this could help us in the future in that respect. And also when it comes to mining asteroids, let's start with if we ever had to deflect an asteroid. And uh, we, one of the reasons why we chose Bennu is because it is the most potentially hazardous asteroid. Mm-hmm. So this asteroid is not threatening Earth now, but it is the one that has the largest probability of having its orbit change and threatening Earth in the future. If it does, we want to deflect it. And by going there early and studying it in detail, we will know how to, f- how to deflect it most effectively or how to deflect another one if another one comes. Because you know, these, these small asteroids tend to have certain shapes, and Bennu and Ryugu, the one that the Japanese went to, are um, similar in shape. And so what we learned about Bennu can be applied to other asteroids. And hopefully we won't have to deflect any of them anytime soon. But if we do, it's very important that we know ahead of time how to do it. Because an an object uh, of five blocks across, Mm. if it were to impact Earth, it would cause global devastation. Mm -hmm. It would cause uh, a winter that would last several years and would extend from the equator to the poles. And imagine a a multi-year winter encompassing the entire planet. The crops would fail. People would starve. Civilization would essentially collapse. So we want to avoid that. So that is the practical reason why we're going to Bennu. The scientific reason why we're going to Bennu is because this asteroid has lots of organic molecules. Those are the organic molecules that existed on Earth before life formed. And right now, we don't know what they are. So by going to this asteroid and bringing back a sample, we will have an idea of the inventory of organic molecules that existed on Earth that might have, uh, that will probably tell us how life formed from those molecules and so if we understand how life formed on earth which we still don't if we were to understand that both here on earth and elsewhere we will know better where to expect life like on under the surface of mars in the moons of jupiter europa for example in planets around other stars where to look for life if we were to understand how it formed on earth we'll have a better idea of where to look for it to find out if we're alone in the universe or not Wow. Okay. And so finding out 
what that asteroid is actually made of would help, say, 100 years from now if it were threatening Earth. Knowing the composition of it yes. would help us on Earth know how to, I don't want to say yes. fight it, but deflect it yes. is a better word. That is correct. And, for example, we believe this asteroid is a rubble pile, and the surface looks like it. It's got rocks of different sizes, and we believe the shape is because of a combination of its rotation and the material just going into this equilibrium of a, uh, an equatorial bolt, basically the equator is wider than the rest of the asteroid because material will tend to uh, to migrate to the equator because it's the, the area where it's spinning uh, uh, where this the, the spin uh, speed is fastest okay right? and so it's rotating once every 4.3 hours but that's affecting the equator more than it's affecting the poles if you're sitting at the pole you're just rotating once every 4.3 hours mm -hmm. but if you're at the equator your, your, your speed is greater so that determines the shape. But we need to know that in, mu in much more detail because we need to know where to push. If this thing is coming to, to hit us, we need to know how gently to push so that we don't suddenly disperse this thing into a shower of smaller asteroids, which could be worse. Sure. Right? And we need to know whether we can do that with a gentle push or with, for example, a technique that has been discussed is to go to the asteroid, pick up a whole bunch of rocks from it, put them in a bag, take them with, with your spacecraft near it, my apologies no, there, uh, near it, and then you use the mass from those rocks that you've obtained from the asteroid mm -hmm. itself to slowly change its orbit because of the gravity between those rocks and the asteroid itself. So it's called a gravity tractor. So you <laughs> use a very gentle pull of gravity over many, many years to change the trajectory from hitting Earth to not hitting Earth. Right, which may not be that much if if you have enough advance notice. If you don't have advance notice mm -hmm. and something's coming toward you and you need to move it out of the way faster, then there are other techniques that can be applied. Well, we've so, seen that. You have to drill into it with Bruce Willis, <laughs> and then you blow it up with the nuclear bomb. Yes. Now, uh, now, I had to ask you about Armageddon before we started, and you just shook your head. You did not like it. Why is the science so bad? Because they didn't want to spend the money on a good science advisor. They did for the other movie that came out at the same time, which was Deep Impact. That had a good science advisor, and it showed. Okay. Uh, yeah, Armageddon is like, you know, uh, middle school children fighting in space. Uh, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right. Um, but the, um, you know, the, it, it is true. It is, it is something that we must protect uh, Earth from. And let me put it into perspective. As individuals, none of the three of us or nobody who's alive now should lose any sleep about an impact from an asteroid. Mm -hmm. But as a civilization, we must. So chances of that happening while we're alive are minimal. But as a civilization, we must because we know it has happened in the past. And in one case, the, when the dinosaurs disappeared, two-thirds of all species on Earth were wiped out by that impact. And luckily enough, some mammals were survived and they evolved into us. But otherwise, we would have a, a planet that is dominated by dinosaurs still, right? So that impact uh, was uh, very bad for two-thirds of species, but good for us good humans for us, because yeah. it gave us the habitat for us to, to evolve and prosper. And uh, another one like that could wipe out civilization, and a much smaller one would also wipe out civilization. So we must protect Earth from a future impact because it will happen unless we prevent it. But again, it's not something that we or our children would have to worry about, uh, but we have a, a responsibility towards 
human civilization. You know, I've never heard anyone describe it that way because we always think, oh, the poor dinosaurs. I mean, we couldn't live with the dinosaur. We wouldn't be here if that had not happened. We would have been dinosaur lunch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> A snack. Okay. Yes. So that's that's so interesting. And when we talk about this asteroid and rendezvousing with it, I feel like when we first talked about it, and some papers have even when uh, it came within the proper distance this week, some papers even said it landed on the asteroid, which is totally incorrect. But I feel like whenever people think about that, that's the image we have in our mind, that you're going to just plunk something down on the surface right now. Yeah, and, and that is not our approach. Our approach is called the touch-and-go maneuver. So it, it basically comes down, touches it for five seconds, collects the sample, and brings it puts it in the capsule to bring it back to Earth. Uh, it is a much safer approach than landing. The, uh, the Japanese had a different approach where they actually dropped several packages of instruments onto the surface. And they have not done their uh, sample collecting maneuver yet, in part because the asteroid is more rocky than they expected. Mm -hmm. And so they are taking their time to select a sample where it's safe for the spacecraft to come down and touch. Um, they also have a very brief uh, period where they touch the surface. So it's not like they, they, they bring the entire spacecraft and they set it on the surface for a while and then, they, no. It's their, their maneuver is also short. Not as short as ours, but it's also short. Oh, I'm sorry. So uh, what, what do we think this thing is made out of? Like, could it be, is, is it, I mean, I know you probably have assumptions of what it's made out of, but chances are we're going to find something we have never seen before, right? That is what excites me most. <laughs> yeah. Because we have a rough idea. We have meteorites, which we think come from this type of asteroids, but we're not sure. And the other thing is that uh, basically all the meteorites, when they enter the atmosphere, they lose 99.9% of their mass before they drop a rock on the surface. So what we pick up in, as a meteorite and what we have mm. at our, with our group at UCF, we study meteorites. When we hold that in our hands, it, that is only 0.1% of what entered the atmosphere. What was lost in the atmosphere? We don't know. Was it, is this the strongest piece of what entered the atmosphere? Or was this the core of what entered the atmosphere? We don't know. So uh, that, that is one uh, limitation, which is that we, we have a big filter that filters out 99%, 99.9% of the stuff. And on, and on top of that, there could be things that don't even make it uh, to our atmosphere that can be sitting on the surface of these asteroids. So we have a rough idea, but when we look at these asteroids, we can tell very little about their composition because they tend to be very dark and they don't show a lot of mineral uh, features. When we, when we take the light from the asteroid and we put it through a prism, break it into its colors, mm -hmm. usually we can tell the composition by doing the spectrum, right? Basically by, by looking at the different components of the light. This type of asteroid is so dark that we can't really tell what it's made of. So when we get there, we will know better, and we will know best when we bring back the sample. So we are likely to be surprised by the asteroid and its features when we, our cameras are taking the detailed maps and by the sample when they come back. How we're going to be surprised? We don't know. That's and what that's surprises why, are, right? That's, that's why we're going there, and that's what excites me most. Um, uh, several of us on the science team were trying to um, 
bet on what would surprise us the most. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I said the that equatorial bulge was going to surprise us the most. But I was just guessing, right? Yeah. And and we'll see. Uh, it could be that we find something that we've never uh, found in our meteorite collection, which I think is going to be the case. Uh, it could also be that uh, this thing has new materials that we never expected. Uh, we are you know, one of the mission, one of the, the goals of this mission, the two main, main the, the main goal is to bring back a sample. It's the other uh, goal, main goal is to characterize this asteroid in case we need to deflect it, mm -hmm. right? But uh, another part of the, the name of the mission, OSIRIS-REx, is uh, resource identification. The RI stands for that. So we're going to also identify resources that could be used for space mining, for asteroid mining in the mm. future. And those resources are likely to be minerals that are rich in water so once we extract the water we can separate that into hydrogen and oxygen which are really good rocket fuel mm -hmm. and also building materials for things in space and uh, we can talk about that in more detail if you'd like which yeah that, get, that gets into well that's whole. the whole thing you're talking about the space mining yeah how soon before you expect to have the samples back in are able to analyze them. We'll be bringing back the samples in 2023. Okay. So immediately they will start being analyzed. They will, they're going to fall in a capsule in the Utah desert. They're going to be recovered real quick and then transported to Houston where they will be curated and analyzed and then given to labs around the U.S. And we're going to be sharing 10% of our sample with the Japanese and the Japanese are going to be sharing 10% of the sample of their <laughs> asteroid with us. How nice. Which is, which is uh, my apologies. Uh, which is um, very important because they're going to a different asteroid. We're going to, a, and so we may be learning things from each other. Uh, and the other thing is they have their experience with their laboratories and we have our experience. We sure. may have different perspectives on how do we analyze this. So it's, uh, yeah, so that's when we bring back the sample. And that sample is going to help us determine how good of a target Bennu it would be for space mining. How much uh, water would these minerals have? How much loose material is there on the surface that would be relatively easy for a mining spacecraft to come and collect and then process and generate fuel and building materials that could then be used near Earth for Earth-orbiting satellites? Uh, this is the part I feel like is you need to really explain because you're talking about mining in space yes. for products that can be used. It's, it's, we think of mining here on Earth, like tearing up some soil and finding some things, but you're talking about launching, landing, and mining on an asteroid. Yes. That's right, and 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 this is um, it's just it's mind bending <laughs> it really to think is. about well, this actually happening. I, I agree with you, and and a few years ago I thought the same way as you guys did, and in the last few years I've had the privilege of being educated by my colleagues on on what's going on in this field, and it makes sense if you think about it this way. When you about when you're about to launch something, what sits on the pad will deliver less than one percent of its mass into orbit. So we are essentially, uh, you know, we have a, a very expensive process to put things in orbit because we have Earth's gravity. Now, um, once we develop the mining and processing techniques to deliver fuel to Earth orbiting satellites from being mined in space and cheaper than being launched from the Earth, which is not a very big, you mm -hmm. know, in, in other words, that's, 
launching things from Earth is expensive. If you can make that process simpler by cheaper by by mining from the asteroid, then you have a big economic incentive because you're going to have all of these customers in Earth orbiting uh, uh, with Earth orbiting satellites, satellites, whether they be communications or weather or other applications, they're going to want to buy fuel from you because it's cheaper to buy it from you from space than to launch it. Okay, so let me make sure I understand. What I'm hearing you say is like instead of a satellite being decommissioned or whatever, you can fuel it from what, yes, whatever you've mined in space, like gassing it up and it's almost like fueling a plane in flight. Mm -hmm. Right. That's is, right. Yes. <laughs> that's crazy. I'm glad you clarified because I, that's what I was getting to. And I'm like, I can't be right. So so we're not talking about whenever I've heard of mining asteroids, I've thought we're going to find some crazy mineral or material up there and we're going to ship it back to Earth so we can use it for something. But that's not at all the case. That's going to be the exception. Okay. Uh, the, the, the rule is going to be simple things like water. Oh, wow, we found water in this asteroid. Let's, in this asteroid. Let's deliver it as hydrogen and oxygen to these uh, fuel depots somewhere between Earth and Moon. And for people who are going to the Moon, they mm -hmm. can stop there and refuel and then head back, head to the surface of the Moon. So, for example, if you, if you have a mission to the Moon, you don't have to put all of your mass in the stuff that you launch from the Cape. You can put all the mass except for the fuels. Then you make it to the fuel depot, so halfway between here and the Moon. You, you gas up, and then you, get, you can land on the Moon without having to have launched all that mass. And then in the case of these uh, Earth-orbiting satellites, there's this constellation of satellites that are being talked about um, uh, to provide internet to the entire planet. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be, you know, hundreds, tens or maybe hundreds of small satellites. And those are either going to run out of fuel or go bad and they need replacement. If you can replace it with material that has been uh, extracted and processed out there at a cheaper price than launching them from here. It has many advantages. Well, number one, the price. Number two, there's another advantage, which is once you get, let's say you launch a very large 3D printer and you have it sitting out there in space ready to print any structure that you want, you feed it with material that you have mined from an asteroid and it will print a structure that you need. And that structure, which will be operating at zero G in space, does not have to be built at 1G here on the surface, mm -hmm. and then does not have to be put into this tube about the size of this table, and then shaken and, and subjected to several Gs during launch, mm -hmm. and eventually deployed into space. You're going to have to build a much more robust and expensive structure if you have to do all that, you know, put it into that tube, launch mm -hmm. it, and then deploy it, than if you gently print it at zero G for it to withstand only the forces that it needs to withstand at zero G. So you can imagine that the revolution in the design of space structures that's going to happen once you can 3D print them there. And then there's a third factor here. There's so, more. Right? <laughs> and which is a little bit of international competition, which I think is healthy. The Chinese are very interested in asteroid mining. Mm -hmm. And so they, I think that that's going to stimulate a little bit of competition with us and with Europe. And so there's going to be more uh, activity in this area. And we are not in first place when it comes to asteroid mining. Uh, no, uh, Luxembourg is. Okay. The tiny little country in Europe that yeah. you could miss if you're on the train from Germany to France. You blink and you just pass yeah. Luxembourg. <laughs> well, that that is that is the country that is leading the effort in asteroid mining. Well, why and how are they leading? Well, they've decided to be they, uh, about 30 years ago, they 
you know, they're a small country. They don't have very many natural resources. They decided that they needed to have some source of, of uh, leadership and income. And they decided to go into uh, um, satellite communications. They are the brokers of satellite communications mm. in, the, in the world right now. So that paid off very well for them. So they decided to take a risk and invest in this area and they are hosting conferences they're bringing uh, uh, experts from around the world they invited me and paid for my trip to go there and uh, and um, uh, attend a conference in, in in april where i met with people from mining industries and and colleagues from around the world and they had another conference in September. They invited my colleague Dan Britt from UCF, and he, he attended that one. So they are very much uh, wanting to be the, the catalyst and the center where people go to develop the technologies to do asteroid mining. Yeah, so now when you talk about asteroid mining, that is a career for, you know, there are some kids who may be in middle school or high school now decide, it's like, well, I want to be an astronaut or I don't want to be an astronaut, but I have a great interest in space and the future of humanity. Space mining is something they really should consider because it's a thing. All space activities take all kinds of professionals. We need people who are good engineers, good mathematicians, good astronomers, good uh, communications people. We need, it takes all types. So if you want to have something to do with space, you can go into almost any career, including radio journalism like we're doing now right uh and or is this called radio journalism uh, it's a little bit of everything you can go with that yeah podcasting. Uh, but uh because we need people to be able to communicate our results to the public and this is something that nobody trained me on and so when i'm here this is harder for me than my equations and my oh you know, my well, hey you're doing well really? yeah, I, every, I feel i don't know about you ginger i feel oddly like comfortable talking Thank to you, you. And, and and part of it is because I'm like shocked that we can do this stuff. It makes me feel a little safer. I think the fact that we're planning ahead for sure. asteroid collisions and it's mining out in space. And doom yeah. and, you know, and run for the hills. But also you're putting it in a way where if I can understand it, I feel like everyone else can understand well, it. Well, my students have helped a lot with that because I have to explain this to them uh, often and then we've had students that have become really interested in, in asteroid mining and one of them got hired by uh, deep space industries and the other one got hired by planetary resources so one of them in the in the Washington state area and the other one here in Orlando and so our students are already going to work for industries that are planning ahead and are testing all of these techniques for them to apply to asteroid mining and on top of that, then we have the ones that are going directly into science, where they're just interested in the science of understanding how asteroids formed and how they evolved and how comets formed and how they evolved. And, they, you know, is there, are there planets uh, uh, with Earth-like conditions around other stars? All of those things. So I'm happy to interact with all of them. But I think that there's two factors here. One, talking to my students often makes me a little bit more comfortable talking about this. The other one is I grew up with three brothers and three sisters and a whole bunch of cousins. And if you didn't <laughs> shout loud enough, you are not going to be heard. So that may be another factor. I see. Uh, that's great. I mean, the way you're talking about it now, just the, and it brings me such joy to just look at your face as you describe it. The look in your eyes, that's the look I get when the new iPhone comes out. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that's the look I get when someone puts a stake in front of me. 
So, and part of that excitement, like what, so let's talk a little bit about future, okay? In your lifetime, before you pass away to the great beyond, what is it you hope and think you're going to see when it comes to asteroids? Oh, I, the analysis of those samples that are going to be brought back in 2023, that's going to be very exciting. But hopefully that won't be the last one. Um, and because I'm part of a team that put together another proposal to NASA to go to the nucleus of a comet and bring back a sample. And there were 12 proposals for different types of spacecraft to do different things, to go to Venus, to go to a number of other things. And they down-selected out of 12 to two, were one of those two. And in 2019, they're gonna decide which one of those two goes ahead. If ours goes ahead, and I knock on wood that we do, so. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we will uh, build another spacecraft and go to the nucleus of a comet, pick up a sample, and bring it back. Oh, my gosh. And so uh, I don't plan on retiring anytime soon. Uh, but if, in terms of the huge privilege of being on this spacecraft mission, the OSIRIS-REx, this is something that has just it's made my career. Now, it's, it's the highlight of my career. Now, if we also get the opportunity to go to the nucleus of a comet, bring back a sample, that would be great. If I end up being somehow involved in asteroid mining, that would be great. Um, I rather let the universe give me these surprises than for me to have specific things that I would want to do because mm. sometimes nature can surprise us in ways that we never even anticipated, right? So I'm just a wonderful, uh, bewildered spectator of <laughs> the universe of you nature. don't want to limit yourself yeah. to right. the possibilities right I, my, my mind is too limited for what surprises uh, the universe can bring us i when you said the com i'm not a rocket scientist but you are and so <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about you know going to a comet and doing kind of what you're doing with this asteroid right now that's a whole different animal it is because we have to go to the comet far away from the sun because the comet is made half ice half dust and so we want that ice not to be evaporating mm -hmm. and then blinding the spacecraft so we need to go over really far away and then we need to keep that sample relatively cold uh, so that it's not warming up and evaporating on its way to earth and then when we pick it up we have we have all these different challenges the good thing is that we selected the comet that the europeans went and spent two and a half years studying they did a rendezvous mission with that comet and they followed it in from far away from the sun in near the sun with all its activity and mm -hmm. then further out they had a, they had the orbiter and then they had a little uh, a spacecraft that they sent to the surface called file um, the the whole mission was called the rosetta mission so they did a detailed study of this comet and then we said oh let's piggyback on yeah. Intel. All yeah. of Add that. To that. <laughs> let's minimize the risk to our mission and let's go to that comet and it turns out that we still have lots of cameras and lots of things to look at the comet once we get there because this comet could have changed, and it's likely to that it will change between now, when the Europeans observed it, and when we get there in 2029, uh, if NASA approves our mission. So we need to st still do a lot, but the shape of the of the of the comet, how it rotates, which areas are going to be most likely for us to go explore in detail, all of that has been established by, thanks to the Europeans. And we also have European colleagues on that NASA mission. So if NASA were to fund us to do that one, we can do it at a much lower risk than if we were starting from scratch without the benefit of the European. 
okay. you know it has ice on it, you said? So oh, you yes. know that one has water. We know that for sure because comets are half water, half uh, cosmic dust, half min so mm -hmm. basically half water, half minerals. And uh, like silicates, like sand, mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, it's always when it's near the sun that water is sublimating. But the the ice in space goes from solid to gas without melting. It's like dry ice here on yeah. Earth. You were to if you were to put a big chunk of dry ice here on this table, you get all this vapor, mm -hmm. and then at the end of it, you look at the table and it's Nothing. dry. Yeah, right. That's why it's called dry ice. Mm -hmm. That's the way water ice behaves in the vacuum of space. So it, when that water ice comes close to the sun, it will sublimate and will carry with it a lot of this dust. And th mm -hmm. that's what we call the coma uh, of the comet. So this is cloud that is surrounds the nucleus. Once the nucleus moves f away from the sun, it gets cold and it behaves more like a solid rock that doesn't have all this activity. That's when we're going to go meet it. So your question was a very good one. It's a longer trip there, a longer trip back. And on the trip back, we're going to need to keep our sample cold. Yes, frozen. Yes. That's and uh, so we, we <laughs> well, have good, different techniques. Good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, you've already figured it out, haven't you? You guys already know what you're going to do. Well, hopefully we have because NASA downselected it from 12 to 2 <laughs> and we're one of those two. So, so you have okay. to have pretty much everything buttoned up yeah. to get down to that point. Yes. So the, one of the, I guess we should wrap it up, but I, I do want to ask you, we started this podcast by saying that there we can only release it after the 10th or on the 10th when you publish a paper. Actually, nothing that I have said today really is embargoed. It's what, the science results from OSIRIS-REx uh, that will be published on, on Monday the 10th. Those are, but I haven't been discussing But those. that's what I want to ask yeah. you about. What's going to be in the paper that we can't talk about today <laughs> that on the 10th we can talk Spill about? It. So, yeah. Well, um, it the surface of this asteroid is very interesting. Uh, it, we already know that there's a very big rock on, uh, standing on the surface on, on one of the hemispheres. That's a puzzle because why would a rock be completely sitting on the surface instead of being half buried, right? Mm -hmm. If this is a rubble pile, it should have like uh, material around it. But, but to be completely sitting on the surface, that's, that's a puzzle. Um, uh, there will be other results that I'm not even privy to that my colleagues have been working on that they will tell me right before they present it, or maybe I will find out when I'm sitting there at the presentations on uh, you know, on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week in Washington, D.C. at a meeting called the uh, um, AGU, which is the uh, uh, American Geophysical Union um, annual meeting, which happens uh, to be in, in Washington, D.C. this year. So I will be attending that. And then from there, I go to Tucson, which is the University of Arizona's the lead institution on OSIRIS-REx. So we're going to all meet in Tucson and discuss our first publication of the results. So I'll, I'll be there for 10 days or so. Mm -hmm. And then I go back there in January. Uh, and I'll be going there quite often in 2019 for, for, for the purposes of understanding what these images mean and writing them up for publication. I feel like he's holding out on us. I think so, because he talked about that rock <laughs> being there. You didn't tell us everything. I, yeah. well, you don't I, trust us, do you? No, it's that there, there, there could be things that I say from my impressions now that by Monday will be completely different. So we are, we're still getting images, and those images are being incorporated on, on, onto our analysis. And it could be that thing. But that rock is very interesting. It's very important. The, the equatorial bulges are important. We have bright and dark areas on the surface that are 
we don't fully understand um, and we're trying to see if the 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 dark stuff are the older stuff or the bright stuff are the older stuff or how does space weather affect it because just like on earth something that you leave out and the elements mm -hmm. will be rusting or changing space weather will change the surface of an asteroid and so is it making it darker and redder or is it making it brighter and bluer we don't know. Yeah, but you were just saying that on Nash they're so dark that you normally can't see it. But obviously, there's something to be seen if it's if you're describing it as brighter. No, we we have images of the of the asteroid, and the analysis of these images has not been released. Um, but and, and they will be released on on Monday, uh, December 10th. But uh, we we in those images we see uh, bright spots, dark spots. We see these very large boulders that tend to be dark and the bright spots don't seem to have any large um, boulders so something is happening to the bright stuff that you don't have any large pieces and something is allowing the dark stuff to have really large pieces we don't know what that means this is the first time we've been there right and geologically this can have many different explanations and we're sorting through all of them right so is uh, so and, and then, remember, this is having fun trying to figure out what this means. But our ultimate responsibility is to tell the team where to pick up that sample. So we're going to have to be making these maps and uh, identifying all the different features on these maps to help the spacecraft decide, or the spacecraft team decide where we're going to bring that spacecraft down and touch the surface for five seconds and bring back the sample. So we're all excited about the science, and I'm a scientist. I want to have fun. <laughs> I want to look at those images for for weeks at a time and be kind of like a, an addicted video game kid. <laughs> that instead of playing the video game, I'll be staring at those images and trying to figure out what they mean. I want to do that, but my, my, my first responsibility is to deliver these maps about you know the size distribution of these rocks where we're likely to have loose material where it's likely to be you know too dangerous because of these uh, too many rocks um, you know where 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 is would it be, be best safest and most interesting to do the sampling and that's that's my responsibility once the sampling gets site gets selected and the sampling gets done as the spacecraft is heading back to earth I will have lots of time to do science with those images which i'm also looking forward to but my my, my primary responsibility is help select that spot do you even need coffee <laughs> i don't drink yes, coffee. I yeah it. i knew it was one of those guys i love the smell of coffee yeah. but it doesn't like me so i don't drink it all right oh well hey it is rare when someone at this age where someone really blows my mind, <laughs> and you did that today, man. Thank you so much my for pleasure. coming on our humble little podcast here. Oh, my, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. If we wanted to talk to you in the future, or if people who are listening to this have questions, can they email you at the university by chance? The, uh, yeah, there's a website uh, that the physics department uh, keeps, and my name is on it, and how to contact me is there. Um, I'd be delighted to come back. I'm not going to be very accessible, and I'm not going to be responding all, responding to all of my emails yes. okay. right away. Gonna be playing yeah. that video game. Well, yeah, I'm right? gonna be I'm gonna be in Tucson looking at those images, and I'm gonna bring those images back here for me to stare for hours on end. But yes, cool. Well, 
whenever you're accessible, we'd love to have you back. Thank it's you so much. Pleasure. This was fantastic. It's been a pleasure. This is Florida's Fourth Estate. Thank you so much for listening or watching, however you get us. She's Ginger Gadsden. I'm Matt Austin. Have a great day.